You are listening to Uncanny Landscapes, Excursions into the Otherwise, with Justin Hopper. Uh, there's a quote from uh, this guy, Charles Wilson Peel, who, who founded one of the first museums in America. Um, and, and he's a really good example of um, maybe like what our ancestry as a museum is, because in his museum, you had domesticated and wild organisms together, um, as well as art and engineering and new technologies uh, with all this stuff. Um, museum of Wonder, uh, as, as all museums 200 years ago were, and something weird happened in the 19th century when we started to separate them out into separate institutions. And that's where, um, you know, we, that's basically carves out the blind spot that is post-natural history. Um, it also created the blind spot that is concepts like the Anthropocene. We essentially edited ourselves out and now we're going, like, oh crap, like we are dramatically altering the world and we don't have a language to talk about it. We don't have collections that have been reflecting this. Um, and so now we're sort of playing catch up with all that stuff. Welcome to Uncanny Landscapes, a series of conversations around and excursions into landscapes of the otherwise. You've just heard today's guest, artist Rich Pell, discussing the museum he founded and operates, the Center for Post-Natural History. The music is by Aubrey Common. More from Rich very soon. And I'm your host, Justin Hopper. I am speaking to you from a small room in Dedham Vale, an area of outstanding uncanny beauty in the east of England. It is my goal through the conversations and accompanying detritus that comprise these podcasts to determine and slowly, poorly, define their subject matter. They are concerned with a wide variety of interpretations of the uncanny landscape, which is, for reasons that will become obvious, the experience with which we so often encounter our surroundings. I walked through the fields today, as I do most days. I come first to the potato field, or what will be a potato field. Today, in November, it mostly harvests morning mist, horizontal sunbeams, and the occasional tiny treasure as the metal detectorists ply their trade. Next is the gate with the sign, Bull in Field. Something of a false warning, as dozy cows and a few childish bullocks are all that await, along with lightning-cursed oaks and mylar birthday balloons caught in the valley's wind-current trap. And after that, the brook, a field boundary that surrounds and defines and, every few decades, is moved to re-establish some minor sale or inheritance that splits or aggregates parcels of land, as has happened since the enclosure in our great, 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 great-grandparents' time. Finally, winter wheat. Bright green, set against the last autumn leaves, it lays low to the ground. And, as has been the case for more generations than we could mention, every single thing I saw, every tree, every square foot of soil, every grain, every nutrient, every squirrel and kite, is genetically beholden to generations of interaction with us, the humans who've called it home. Our impacts remain and are passed on, even if, like the detectorists, it's hard to find the traces. They are there, buried. 
Richard Pell is an artist who lives and works in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in the USA. He is an associate professor of art at Carnegie Mellon University and one of the co-founders of the influential art and engineering collective, the Institute for Applied Autonomy. For the past decade and more, his major artwork has been the creation, curation, and operation of the Center for Post-Natural History, a permanent museum in Pittsburgh which also generates traveling exhibitions and other media, including an exhibition focused on the Center's work at the Wellcome Collection in London, Making Nature, in 2016. I need to offer one more brief introduction. Later in our conversation, Rich will discuss his colleague and friend Ian Nagoski. Ian is a curator, historian, and archivist of music whose Canary Records label is rightfully acclaimed for releases of 20th century immigrant music and, as we'll discuss, century-old recordings of birdsong and related material. Now, discussing the Center for Post-Natural History, here's Richard Pell. My name is Rich Pell, and I'm a founder of a small museum in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, called the Center for Post-Natural History. Um, and that, what we do is ba basically focus on living organisms, um, plants and animals that have been intentionally altered by people um, in a way that uh, that affects their uh, their heredity. Let's say so. We're you know basically the the cultural influence over evolution. Um, which sounds like super anachronistic, um, but it's basically, uh, it's something that natural history museums kind of everywhere in the world have more or less ignored. Uh, you know, so this, this basically includes every plant and animal that was ever domesticated, right? Everything we, we raise in captivity, um, every pet pretty much, your dogs, your cats, um, most of the foods you eat, the grains, the fruits, the vegetables, um, everything that's grown in a lab, every biological weapon, uh, every racehorse, you know, it's, it ends up being this kind of bizarrely wide view of the world um, that essentially allows us to see ourselves reflected in the living world. Um, you know, in a sense, we can look at these living things and kind of see something about what people want, what they fear. Um, in the same way that you might look at like the architecture of a, a distant civilization that you might not know anything else about, but you know, we still feel free to like interpret what that architecture tells us about those people. You know, what were they afraid of? What was going on in their world? And for some reason, we don't have a place for that uh, when it comes to the living world. We've separated life out into like nature and culture um, and we, we made two separate museums for those things. Um, and in doing that, we've kind of lost the ability to uh, kind of see ourselves in the biological world. Um, and that has all kinds of consequence, right? You, you, you can't take responsibility if you're not in the picture. Um, you also can't take credit. Uh, you know, so this is this is not a, a utopian or a dystopian way of looking at things. It's a complicated, paradoxical, nuanced way of considering things. Um, and so we're it's we're here to like start a conversation about this stuff. There's a lot of talk in Britain these days, and, and maybe in America, but I wouldn't necessarily know anymore. But there's a lot of talk in Britain these days about rewilding, about this idea of rewilding, and and part of this is 
part of it is based on, and part of it is uh, is sort of skewered by the fact that every inch of, particularly southeastern England, every inch of it has been a managed landscape for, you know, literally thousands of years. Almost everything you see is is the result of human habitation. You have to have boundaries uh, smaller than that. Um, that's a great question. Yeah, like where 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 is the edge? Where is the fence around the post natural? Um, you know, so what we eventually arrived at um, is actually like deceptively simple, uh, which just has to do with human intention. Um, these are the the changes to life that that we meant to do, that that we did on purpose, um, as opposed to uh, inadvertent changes as a result of pollution or contamination. Uh, you know, all that stuff kind of comes under a larger umbrella that's lately been called like the Anthropocene, right? You know, like the human influence over broader geology and um, and broader biology in that sense. But we're just focusing on the stuff that we would actually like point to and say, okay, that's culture. Um, that's something that that reflects somebody's intention. And, and that's fuzzy. That's It's hardly a fence. It's a rickety fence if it's a fence at all. Um, but that is kind of the boundaries. Uh, and so this stuff does start with, you know, potentially kind of accidental experimentation, um, right. uh, and, but does become increasingly intentional over time, you know, and, and grains tell that kind of a story um, as they, you know, they, as they, they adapt to the things that we want, we find new things to do with them and it pushes back and forth, right? They, the, the organisms are, um, you know, expanding their territory wildly as a result of having seduced us into liking them in all these different ways. Um, that's a, uh, an idea that Michael Pollan um, so beautifully describes in The Botany of Desire, um, the way uh, plants uh, seduce people into kind of creating a more perfect world for them. Uh, and the two right. kind of push back and forth on each other. Um, so it's, it's not always this top down kind of thing. We're being changed as much as they are. But the type of objects that you're collecting and researching must run the gamut then from these things that are, that are, um, uh, I'm tempted to use the word boring and that's not <laughs> what I want to say, but, but very, very ordinary. First of all, I love that you use the word boring. Um, because that is, in so many ways, the key word here. Um, it's a lot of the stuff on the surface does appear painfully boring. Um, and it kind of became our task to, to look deeper and find those extraordinary stories underneath all this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, because it is important for us uh, to have this wide field of view um, so that we don't become a kind of freak show, right? We're, we're not just cherry picking the stuff that's obviously weird. Um, because what we found is that you point to any of it and you look hard enough and the history underneath it is just rife with all the weird stuff that makes any kind of, kind of cultural deep dive um, fascinating. Uh, and you know, dogs are a huge part of that. We have a collection of dog skulls um, that are um, just objectively bizarre, right? And they're their bizarreness is quite new, uh, like uh, the English bulldog or these other kind of pug dogs with squashed faces. 
you know, that kind of quality in dogs has only been around for about a century and a half. Right. Um, you know, pr previous to that, those breeds were identifiable by having a short snout, but they had a face, right? It's, it's only in, in that time in between where we developed a notion of what, of a pure breed. And we just started breeding them together for that one trait, selecting for it over and over again, that we've kind of created these animals that have a difficult time breathing and their jaws don't match up. And so when you look at the skull, you can see that. It's, yeah. it's so clear because the skull itself is not cute. You know, we, we get seduced by this cute cartoonness of it. Um, so, you know, we give people an opportunity to stare at something as familiar um, and seemingly benign as a dog and see it for this kind of bizarre sort of monstrous funhouse mirror of desire uh, looking back at you. Um, and then, you know, you put that next to say something like uh, a laboratory rat. Um, and, uh, you know, we use rats in the lab as kind of miniature versions of people. Um, we sort of project all of our insecurities into them, uh, give them neuroses, give them diseases, uh, and, and, and steady them. Um, one of the rats that we have on display here is this white rat uh, that was selectively bred for alcoholism. Uh, this was a project in Finland um, funded by the government. And what they wanted was what they call a, a research model. They, you know, and a, when they say model, it's like a, a model as in a miniature, as in like a miniature model of a human you know, condition. Uh, so that they can study, you know, drug-based therapies for addiction. So these rats were given a choice between water and alcohol. Um, and with each generation, they bred only the ones that would lean towards the alcohol until they got an animal that from birth would choose alcohol over water every time when given the choice. Um, and that's nothing if not cultural, right? That's a concern that's highly cultural. Um, and the notion of breeding that into an animal is a very culturally specific activity. Uh, the fact that you're doing it to a rat of all, of all animals um, is the result of a very culturally specific experience that takes us right back to the plague, right? I mean, these, every boring organism that, that seems boring on the surface is only boring because we have an intentional cultural blind spot to it. We don't want to talk about that stuff anymore. Um, and that's kind of the extraordinary thing. So we'll put all these things next to each other. Um, and the, the idea from the beginning was that like kind of each new exhibit should be different enough from all the rest of it, that we're always expanding the notion of what is post-natural, what is a way of looking at post-natural history. Like you're, like you're getting at there, it's a curatorial act to say, putting some of those grains uh, um, in a you know in a vitrine, and having the next vitrine be an alcoholic rat, you know you're saying it, look at the barley again. Yeah, absolutely, and and it gives you kind of permission. Um, you know, one of the, like our our exhibits, a lot of them uh, are an object like an egg or something you know quite visually boring on the surface, familiar. Uh, you know, a little spotlight that fades on as you pick up a telephone receiver and then you get a story and the stories are about two to three minutes. Um, I think of them as, as pop song length, right? They're the, the seven inches of our exhibits. Um, you know, our exhibits are maybe an album. The museum is a box set. You know, this is, uh, this is the band that I always wanted to have. Um, <laughs> 
and 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 you know they are a collection and each one plays against the other and gives you permission to look deeper at the others um, some are some are familiar and some are less familiar uh, there's a quote from uh, this guy Charles Wilson Peel who who founded one of the first museums in America um, and and he's a really good example of um, maybe like what our ancestry as a museum is because in his museum you had domesticated and wild organisms together um, as well as art and engineering and new technologies uh, with all this stuff. Right. Um, museum of Wonder, uh, as, as all museums 200 years ago were, and something weird happened in the 19th century when we started to separate them out into separate institutions. And that's where, um, you know, we, that's basically carves out the blind spot that is post-natural history. Um, it also created the blind spot that is concepts like the Anthropocene. We essentially edited ourselves out and now we're going like, oh crap, like we are dramatically altering the world and we don't have a language to talk about it. We don't have collections that have been reflecting this. Um, and so now we're sort of playing catch up with all that stuff. in some cases exhibits that um, people have heard of but they've never seen uh, so one, one example is there's there's almost a, 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 a like an oral history an oral tradition of uh, the idea of a goat that makes spider silk in its milk yeah yeah it's like much talked about Margaret Atwood uses it in, in her science fiction um, she calls them spokes um, but they are real. They do exist. Uh, they were created, you know, circa 15, maybe 15 plus years ago. Um, they're called biosteel goats. Uh, and they have uh, a history of kind of movements that uh, involve Canada and a private company. And then they moved to the U.S. and government funding. There a lot of different groups were sort of invested in the idea of making a lot of spider silk because it's strong yet flexible. Yeah. Like, the out-of-the-box thought was, instead of trying to farm spiders, which are not domesticated, what if we hijack a domesticated animal and make it produce spider silk? So can I just interrupt this to ask yeah. um, the, the sort of folkloric aspect to that? Yeah. Then vastly predates the, the reality of it. Is that true? No. Um, oh, the no. Reality, okay. th this is actually a case where, like, the reality was so bizarre that it contaminated science fiction. Oh, okay. Um, but nobody actually saw one of these goats, right? It, it, it's just the idea of a spider goat is exists within that uncanny valley, right? Um, it, it's like tr it triggers this uh, kind of yuck factor, uh, bringing together two things that are unlike uh, in a way that um, is generally not appealing. Uh, so, <laughs> it's you know, true, isn't one it? One of the things that we do in our exhibits is like we try to present, we try to give you an opportunity to sort of be with this stuff sort of as it is. Um, so, you know, we have, we were able to uh, over time uh, acquire one of these goats, one of the first four breeders that were produced. Her name's Freckles. Um, and uh, at the end of her life, we, it's, you know, we 
we sort of made friends with the lab and said, Hey, you know, when one of your goats dies, let us know. Um, right. Uh, so we, we, we found a taxidermist nearby and had the, you know, the goat mounted and she's now an exhibit here. Um, and on the surface, she looks just like other goats of her kind, at least as far as I can tell. Um, that's not where the, the yuck factor exists, right? Yeah. We, we expect it to happen in the visual. Um, and most post-natural changes aren't visual, especially when it comes to like genetic engineering. Um, that's not to say these changes are benign or insignificant. Uh, that's just, they're not where we expect them to be. And they require more of our attention to really consider what they mean. Um, and that's, that's really why I felt it was important to have a museum, a place where like, you're going to spend an hour or two thinking about this stuff. It's not a website. It's not something you click through. It requires more of your time to get into a headspace where you can really allow yourself to think deeply, allow yourself to potentially question some assumptions you had. Um, and again, we're not, we're not promoting any of this stuff. We don't have uh, a sponsor that would uh, encourage us to do so. Um, we're encouraging people to think more deeply about like their role in it, um, yeah. their own personal history. Uh, and, and some of this is full of wonder and some of it is full of worry. Um, and, and we are you know, nothing, if not a, a safe place to explore those feelings. Some people are going to have a, a very instant gut reaction. And, and, you know, sometimes that's as sort of basic as thinking something's really exciting or really disgusting, but sometimes, you know, there's a real moral quandary here. you like the drunken rat, you know, when you describe it the way that you described it, it's it's very obvious to me as an outsider, and I won't ask you to put a moral judgment on it, but it's very obvious to me as, as an outsider that that's a horrific thing to do to a living creature. In your curation, that kind of instinct and that, those kinds of ideas are obviously going to come out, but do you feel the need to fight against that a little bit and, and retain a kind of neutrality, or do you have a critical eye within it? I certainly, as a curator, have a critical eye, um, and that comes across in the curation, um, but I also have had a personal experience of seeing my own assumptions kind of dissolve or change or get proven wrong um, as a result of like kind of doing a deeper dive here. Uh, so I kind of don't trust my own instincts, uh, you know, in, the, in its first pass. Um, and and uh, part of what I do is, um, kind of holding back on the, the signifiers that tell, tell people uh, how I think they should think. Yeah. Um, and, and give a space for somebody to arrive at a conclusion that is truly their own. Um, so, and that can take you in a bunch of different directions. Um, and there's, there's risk involved in that, right? You know, people, people might walk out of the museum with a conclusion that is counter to my own. Um, and, and that's the risk that I take as a, as a curator, as a museum director. Um, you know, it's not, uh, we don't have like a narrow propagandistic mission. Um, it's a much more open mission. And part of that is because, like I say, my, my instincts have been proven wrong time and again. And, and I'll give you an example of one that I'm, I'm in the process of kind of processing and researching right now. 
Yeah. Um, I, I've, I've talked about agriculture from the beginning. I've talked about the cultural history of specific agricultural plants. I talk about uh, tobacco for existence, uh, for example, um, and the way tobacco is used as a model organism in laboratories now to study all kinds of genetic issues. Uh, tobacco has obviously this cultural history linked to, um, you know, more contemporarily smoking, uh, but also linked to, you know, indigenous Native Americans. Um, and I've never talked about slavery in the context of tobacco or in the context of agriculture. What, what a, an absurdly huge blind spot I've had. Um, and so I'm trying to fill that in to try to understand as much as I possibly can, because once, once I saw that blind spot and realized it was so huge and so conspicuous, um, uh, it, it it was it was it was embarrassing and humiliating. Um, this is one of the things that uh, has been great about this quarantine is that the museum's been closed for the last four months. I've I've had the opportunity to not only do research, um, but also to like rethink kind of the whole thing. Yeah, um, rethink my own assumptions. Uh, you know, so this whole this whole era of uh, when human beings. Um, were treated as non-human, as farm equipment, as animals. Um, that that history is absolutely a part of post-natural history. And my job as a white person um, is to unpack that and lay it bare as clearly as possible, as clearly as I'm laying other things bare. Um, and and so you know that's that's the kind of thing that like on your surface read of tobacco. Um, I can't trust my own instincts, and I'm kind of trying to create a space in which other people are, are kind of given the opportunity to question their own, too. Right, I'm an artist. I'm not a scientist. Uh, um, I'm 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 kind of curating rabbit holes. I'm pointing. Uh, I'm a signpost. Um, you know, so when it comes to climate change, there's all kinds of uh, efforts to engineer crops to tolerate uh, new climactic conditions, um, and 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 soils that they wouldn't have been planted in before, but those are the soils that exist in the climate that you want that plant to grow in. Um, so that's one way in which we're playing catch up. I mean, that's quite an interesting concept, actually. That the you know the anthropogenic climate situation means that humans change the environment in which they have been trying to grow crops so then they have to change their crops again to fit that uh you know it is quite cyclical and circular isn't it it is and it's speeding up faster and faster and this is kind of one of the 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 big problems um we're, we're changing things faster than we can keep up with um 
uh, and, and I got to be careful when I use the word we. Um, that's another thing that I'm trying to catch myself on. It's not, this isn't everybody. This is, um, uh, you know, very intensive global capitalism um, and the populations that that serves. Um, so, for example, in the U.S., um, we've got these uh, concentrated animal feeding operations where you've got, you know, up to hundreds of thousands of cattle within a fairly small area. We have taken the idea of cattle farming for meat purposes and turned it into this um, completely, almost, you know, self-contained uh, meat assembly line. Yeah. Um, and along with that comes all kinds of consequences that get, get externalized, right? Um, the, the waste from the animals in so many different ways, um, from the methane to the, the solid waste, um, all that uh, affecting climate, affecting soil, um, uh, not to mention just like, like the, the, the moral cost of, of that level of kind of um, pain and trauma, you know, uh, inflicted upon not only the animals, but also the people that work with them that are processing these animals, right? Um, and all that is in the surface, in the service of uh, cheap hamburgers, uh, chicken nuggets, um, really cheap sources of protein. Yeah. We are addicted to that stuff. And again, there goes the wheat. Then you brought up the issue of coronavirus, which intersects with this again when the industrialized world concentrates animals together to that extent, um, we're depriving their immune systems in so many different ways. We're, we're essentially creating the conditions um, for uh, new viruses to emerge. To It's a crucible um, where we give them this monoculture of flesh um, that can be passed from organism to organism very, very easily. Uh, we place them in very kind of fluid contact with other species, including particularly ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. This is the greatest opportunity for a virus that affects cattle or chickens to also affect us. Um, we facilitate that in the greatest possible way. And that's why, you know, we have swine flu, bird flu. These are, they affect domesticated animals. It's not just kind of a random chance that these happen to be the ones that we also get, right? Yeah. It's not a zebra flu, right? It's pigs, chickens. <laughs> um, and, you know, in the case of coronavirus, it appears to not so much have that particular tradition associated with it, but it has another one that's equally kind of uh, implicates us, um, which is in kind of this exotic animal uh, trade. It's, it's, it's in that border where we're increasingly encroaching um, into, uh, into what we, you know, once were wild environments. Yeah. Um, we're, 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 you know, viruses jump between species. They just do it very infrequently. It's like you're rolling a die, but you're, the, the, the die is huge, or you're rolling a whole bunch of dies, or you're playing a slot machine, whatever the metaphor you want. Um, there's a very unlikely chance of it winning, but periodically it happens. But we increase those odds dramatically the more we put ourselves in contact, in close contact with those organisms. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's reason to believe that pangolins play a part in this, bats, um, and those are happening at like the, the borders of our industrialized civilizations and the habitats that these animals have. Um, so, you know, there, there is the fence of the post-natural. Yeah. Right? 
if, if, if intentionality plays a part, if we are capturing those animals and bringing them in, raising them in captivity further, um, that's when they become increasingly post-natural and, and that issue becomes increasingly in kind of my domain of responsibility to be talking about. So, I mean, sea monkeys are, are kind of the most popular example of a kind of um, what I might call novelty organism. Uh, the ant farm would be another example um, where, you know, some small, seemingly insignificant creature, right? S scale um, is <laughs> matters for some reason in, in, in our degree of empathy. Um, yeah. But these were, you know, or things you could buy for like a dollar or something real cheap, usually sold in the back of comic books. And uh, in the case of sea monkeys, you would get um, a series of packets. They look like like sugar packets and they have numbers on them and you sort of tear them off in order. Uh, and the first packet is uh, called your water treatment. And so as a kid, you'd pour that into the water and you'd wait a day before you could put in packet two. So it's this unbelievably long period of time for a child to yeah. anticipate seeing, you know, the, the miracle of life, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and of course, sea monkeys are depicted as these cartoon characters, which are sort of anthropomorphic. Um, they look like us, they're sea monkeys after all. Uh, and then you put in packet number two uh, and you kind of hold the, you know, the jar of liquid or whatever up, up to the light. Uh, and and pretty quickly, you actually see these little tiny points kind of wiggling around in the water. Um, so they are, as you say, they are brine shrimp. Um, and when I first opened the museum, uh, I wanted um, I, I wanted the first exhibit to be the most common and benign, you know, the least consequential post-natural organism I could think of that was still kind of spoke to wonder on some level, um, yeah. something a little bit nostalgic. And so I was, it, was, I, it was sea monkeys is what I settled on. That's what it's gonna be. Um, and so I, I bought a bunch of sea monkey kits to sell in the gift shop. And <laughs> then I, I sat down to write like the, uh, little, you know, the, the, the narrative, the story, the couple of paragraphs that would sum up the sea monkey story. And as I did that, the story just cracked open uh, in, in a million different ways. Um, and and this, it's a kind of a perfect example of what I talk about when you look at something that's boring on the surface and dig under it, it's as complicated as we are. And the sea monkey story is that. You know, long story short, uh, sea monkeys were invented by, uh, the idea was invented by this guy in the 60s who was kind of um, almost like a, a Coney Island um, kind of a character. Like he, he, he managed the guy that jumps off the 40-foot tower into one foot of water. You know, he was that kind of a character. Um, so he always had these schemes, kind of publicity schemes, kind of a P.T. Barnum sort of guy in that way. Uh, and he, he came up with this idea of, of selling dried 
uh, brine shrimp to kids and you add water and they come back to life. Um, and uh, one, of the, the, one of the clever things, a few things that I'll give him credit for uh, was uh, he, he, one of the reason the scheme worked was that in that in that first packet I described where you have to wait a day, he secretly puts half of the eggs in that packet. So you don't actually have to wait a day as it turns out. Sea monkeys don't care. Um, but it gives them a whole day to kind of hatch from their eggs and start swimming around. And so by the time you put packet number two in, it has a little bit of blue dye that lands on the sea monkeys. And so you can actually see them. And that, that's the miracle of instant life as he calls it. Um, I learned that from reading his, uh, his patent on sea monkeys. Uh, so while reading these patents, I was like, okay, who is this guy? You know, I wanted to figure out more about him because he had all these other patents that were super disturbing, um, body armor and a lot of weapons. He patented a whole bunch of different, like a, like a blackjack, like a sort of a weapon that sort of telescopes out. It's a beater. They're illegal for good reason in a lot of places. Um, and for that reason, he, he actually got arrested once at an airport with a briefcase full of these things. Um, and that was when he sort of showed up on the radar as to like, wait, who is this guy? Why is this sea monkey guy traveling around with a whole bunch of suitcase full of weapons yeah. that he's selling? And where is he selling them? And it turned out he was selling them largely in Aryan Nation publications. So the sea monkeys are in comic books. The weapons are in Aryan Nation publications. What's going on here? Um, this guy's name was Harold von Braunhut. But it turns out that Harold was Jewish. He was born Harold Nathan Braunhut, changed his name at some point, um, and had been funding um, a lot of the, the Aryan nation in, in, a, in America um, through you know, profits from these things. Uh, and th th so this, this is basically what I figure out as I'm preparing this first ex exhibit at the Center for Post-Natural History that I had previously <laughs> thought was completely benign, yeah. uh, full of wonder, and that I was going to also be selling in the gift shop. So I was like, oh, <laughs> you know? Um, so obviously I didn't sell them in the gift shop and I, you know, my story became, you know, not one of wonder, but one of the, the twists and turns and complications and paradoxes of what it is to, you know, of, 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 of people when you look deeply into their hearts. Um, so it, it, it ended up not being the first exhibit. I, I forget what I actually put in as the right. first one, but it got, it got moved to the back of the museum so that by the time you got there, you were a little bit more prepared for these complicated twists and turns. Um, the Sea Monkey story even has uh, intellectual property and patents being a big part of it. There's a, a lawsuit right now and part of what is at stake in the lawsuit is, is the post-natural status of sea monkeys. Are they actually their own species, their own breed, or are they just generic brine shrimp? Yeah. Because if they're just generic, well, then nobody owns them. But if they are distinct, if, if they were bred in some special way, um, then they, maybe they are the intellectual property of the company that created them. Trans Science Laboratories, I believe is their name. Yeah, which doesn't sound nefarious at all. <laughs> but it is just kind of one example of like, any one of these post-natural organisms, if you stare deeply into it, all, all the darkness and light that, that is humans uh, is there. And it's there to be, to be discussed and cracked open.
Ian Nagaski is somebody that I met uh, as a freshman in high school. I, I didn't have many friends, and uh, <laughs> and so I was sitting at a, at a at a table that I don't usually sit at. Um, I thought maybe these people would be interesting, and I, they were talking about music, and that was that was how we met. Um, was over talking about Sid Barrett. Um, he was the only other person in my high school who knew who Sid Barrett was, let alone was a fan. Um, and so we've been lifelong friends and collaborators. Uh, and Ian really taught me how to how to do this deep dive, how to like dig into a rabbit hole. And it was through learning about music and the way he would learn about a musician's life, the context they're from, um, the scene, all that kind of stuff. And the way I would listen to him unpack a story like that um, taught me how to tell stories. I wouldn't be able to do it without. Um, so, you know, a number of years ago at this point, maybe 10 years ago, uh, he was visiting and, and I'd been trying to figure out for a while how to, how to find the overlap between what I was doing as, with post-natural history and what he was doing uh, with music, particularly old recordings of music. He was, he's done some incredible work resurrecting uh, forgotten lives of us, particularly immigrants to the US in the 20s and 30s. Um, and, you know, it was like, are there, are there songs about animals? Is that a thing? Do people sing about cows? You know, we're trying to struggling to find what the common thread would be. Uh, and we were at uh, Jerry's Records in Squirrel Hill. Um, and a, they had a little section for old 78 RPM records called Whistle and Willies. And Ian's really good at digging through those records. And he popped up this one. And we're reading the label. And it says, training record for roller canaries. We're like, what does that mean? We took it home, dropped a needle on it, and it was, it was beat to death. You could barely hear the recording, but the recording sounded like, like, like early electronic music. Like, what is this? It says water organ on the label. What is a water organ? And that record basically opened up this rabbit hole, um, which was the history of training canaries and nightingales, trained captive domesticated songbirds, um, training them to sing songs that they don't sing on their own, that's basically songs that, that sound good to people, not sounds, songs that sound good to birds. We sort of hijacked the mating calls of these birds in order to turn them into playback devices. Um, and there's this whole industry of trained birds where you can buy a canary that has been trained. Um, there were machines for playing repeated melodies to these birds to program them. Uh, and then even after the invention of the phonograph, that disc that we had was a recording of one of those machines that was in turn intended to be played for an audience of birds. Right. And so suddenly it was like, oh my God, this is a whole, this is not only post-natural history, this is media history. This is, you know, how did you get recorded music before the phonograph? You had a trained songbird. Yeah. And why isn't that the first chapter in any media history book? But I haven't found one in which it is. Um, so Ian did the deep dive there and found just one mind-blowing piece of information after another. Uh, for one other example, um, the instrument, the recorder, the kind of wooden flute, penny whistle kind of a thing. Um, a lot of us, at least in the U.S., played those in, in public schools. For whatever reason, that's like your entry-level melody instrument. Um, but it's called a recorder, and you can look this up in the OED. The recorder gets its name because it was developed for the purpose of recording music into bird brains. That was its job. It, it's extraordinary. And, and Ian, if you go to 
Uh, Canary Records is the name of his record label, and he has an extraordinary Bandcamp site with all of these records um, of old recordings that he himself cleans up. He does all the research, writes the liner notes, um, and there's a vast body of uh, uh, of music uh, recordings uh, uh, that kind of tell the story of uh, immigrants coming to the U.S., um, stories of the Ottoman diaspora, uh, and then quite a lot dedicated to uh, songbirds, um, recordings of songbirds and recordings of people imitating songbirds, which was its own uh, kind of performative tradition that has its own mind-blowing history. I'm sure that there's an incredibly dark side to it, but it feels like a, a much there more... Is, I'll find it. <laughs> it feels like a much more collaborative form of the post-natural there, doesn't it? You know, it feels as though this is something where we love what the birds do and we just want more of it and then we want to imitate it and then we want them to imitate us imitating it and etc i i you know that that's that's the relationship to birds that i want to believe in um that we share a common love of music um you know you have to counter that against the uh, the fact that these are caged birds um and and how do you really feel about that uh you know it's it's a uh, it's it's tricky territory um, but uh, it, it, it does certainly have um, a component of wonder, a component of aesthetic beauty to it, um, and, but then is also complicated in, in that way. You know, like uh, these are our, all opportunities for us to kind of question the assumptions um, that, that we have you know, about the world. One of the things that I love about the way you present information is that you have this sort of dry wit and it tends to have a flavor of a kind of 50s space age kind of World's Fair exploration. It, it, I mean, first of all, do you agree with that? And second of all, do you, do you perhaps feel as though the post-natural had a sort of, you know, there was an explosion of, of sort of recognition of the post-natural albeit in a really naive way in that era that, that goes from, you know, uh, from sort of Bikini Atoll up through sea monkeys and a little bit beyond. I hadn't thought about it in the way that, that you're describing that, but when you invoke Bikini Atoll, the history of the atomic bomb, um, these are, you know, signposts in my world. Um, if you saw the exhibition at the Welcome Center, you know, one of the things I brought to the table was photographs that I'd taken of uh, rodents that uh, had been, that had some sort of relationship to the history of the atomic bomb that were in the collection of the Smithsonian, including ones that were collected on Bikini Atoll before and after uh, those bombs were dropped. Um, so that, that timeline fits. Um, and maybe there is an explosion uh, in the post-natural in the same sense that there was an explosion in sort of technological development and kind of the human hubris that goes along with thinking that we can create the world and recreate the world and that every problem that comes along has a necessary technological fix if we only can engineer the world fast enough to keep up with it. Um, and so uh, that probably does lurk in the background. I, ha I hadn't thought about the voice of the kind of the world's fair voices as, as my own, um, but those world fairs end up being signposts for the post-natural as well, because that's, that's where new breeds get kind of shared with the world um, consistently. 
you know, all the way back through the 19th century. That's when, um, you know, the Philadelphia Centennial, that's when uh, kudzu, which is like uh, in the US is a, um, an invasive vine. Uh, that's when it first appeared in North America. It was, you right. know, this was a, a new ground cover. Isn't it exciting? Um, and, you know, it went on to cover quite a lot of ground. The other thing I guess that I wanted to just ask, and this is much more about me having seen it on your Facebook page and being um, really interested, is um, about your Fiji mermaid and and in particular about this Martha Honeywell uh, piece that you've gotten because I couldn't actually, you know, I only glanced at a Facebook entry but a few weeks ago, but I couldn't get where it fits in. Mm, mm. I mean, Neither one of those are really on exhibit at the Center for Post-Natural History because I haven't created enough context for them to exhibit, to exist in. Um, I haven't figured out what they are, what they mean to me. Um, but I'll give you, uh, I'll, I'll wade into that territory because I think they might be relevant. Um, they are certainly a source of inspiration, particularly the, the Honeywell. So Martha Honeywell, um, you know, she was born in the late 18th century, 1780 something. Uh, and born with uh, effectively without hands or arms. I think she had a part of one upper arm, um, no legs, a part of a foot that had three toes. Um, and, and, and that particularly in that time in history, um, probably didn't have a, a, a lot of expectations of survival, let, let alone leading a say rich life. Um, but she uh, developed these skills for using her mouth um, to write with uh, and eventually to operate a pair of scissors uh, wherein she would create these elaborate paper cuts um, out of thin pieces of paper. They call it watch paper for some reason. Uh, and she would cut um, portraits of people like their silhouettes out of these papers uh, and cut things, on, you know, not unlike snowflakes, except instead of folding the paper up to do it, or maybe maybe there, it did involve some folding. I don't see the evidence of that, but you know, just meticulous cuts to create almost doily-like patterns, um, where there's like less paper than there is space within it. Um, exquisite. Uh, when you view it under a, a magnifying lens, uh, it only becomes more incredible. Um, one of the things she was famous for doing was writing the Lord's Prayer uh, in beautiful script uh, within the, the circumference, the space of a dime. So if you take a dime and you trace a circle around it, and then writing within that space the entirety of the, of the Lord's Prayer without any crowding, um, with better penmanship than I have at any scale, uh, and she's doing it using her mouth. Um, Astonishing. It's, it's incredible. And she traveled the U.S. doing this, uh, exhibiting in, in all of our early museums, Charles Wilson Peale's museum. Um, she eventually was able to go to Europe and spend at least a decade uh, traveling around Europe. Um, and yet there's sort of scant information on her. Uh, there's, there's these artifacts that she left behind. Um, basically, I've told you almost everything that's known about her. Um, uh, and, and, you know, there should be, there should be a film. I mean, this is um, uh, 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 a disabled woman who created, uh, she was an entrepreneur. 
She was an artist. She traveled the world um, during a time when none of those things should have been possible, right? And, and so she breaks all those assumptions about the world. And that's something that I really am just kind of intuitively attracted to. Yeah. Something that doesn't fit the expected categories. And particularly when it's, um, when it's a person, particularly when it's an underdog story, it's just something that I, I hold close to me. It, it, it points to a, a blind spot that I've had on, on the edge of the post-natural, um, which really just has to do with, with human beings themselves. Um, and the, the, the issue of slavery fell into that. Um, the, uh, the history of eugenics um, is a major part of that, um, where we're, you know, in t- you know, this was a time period when we were in t- white people were intentionally trying to breed other people. Um, and I've been for a long time kind of on the fence as to how to talk about that. Um, it requires a different voice than I use for the other exhibits, I think. Um, and, uh, my job in that is a maybe different from the other exhibits too. Um, so I don't know exactly how Honeywell fits into it. Um, Yeah, but I can see where you're, I can see where you're starting to go. You know, there is a, a, you know, there, there is an element to that of, uh, you know, when you start thinking about intention and you start thinking about, you know, eugenics and and those kinds of ideas, uh, you, you start, you know, you can, it's only a short line between that and, um, and in a world in which, in which she had never been. Exactly. And, and really that's, that's what it is. Um, she's, you know, this incredibly inspiring case of, um, you know, human resilience, uh, against physical constraints of the body. And, um, um, certainly a portion of eugenics is dedicated to eliminating those conditions from people and uh and and in its darkest forms eliminating those people altogether thank you for listening to uncanny landscapes we'll be back soon with the next installment my guest was richard pell for more on his center for post-natural history visit the center's website that link and others including the film pell co-wrote just add water the story of the amazing sea monkeys are all in the podcast info the music was by orbury common including woman hair from the album building the goddess temple and the orban folk from the album Suppertime seance links to orbury common's bandcamp site are also in the podcast info the title theme is by the belbury poly the uncanny landscapes icon is by stefan musgrove Firebrand Creative. Additional special thanks to Lucy Greaves. I'm Justin Hopper. You can contact me via Twitter at Old Weird Albion and find links to everything I've mentioned on the Uncanny Landscapes site, uncannylandscapes.podbean.com. More installments coming soon. Follow, subscribe, or rate the podcast if that's an option. We'll keep a lookout on the wires. And if you've enjoyed this and other episodes, please share this podcast with a like-minded friend. Just one will do. We're building a conversation here, not an empire. Until then, on its 10th anniversary, remember Patrick Keeler's film, Robinson in Ruins. When a man called Robinson was released from Edgecott Open Prison, 
He made his way to the nearest city and looked for somewhere to haunt. The house had once been a hotel and was not far from the river. For a few weeks, he dared go no further than the city's outskirts. He believed that he could communicate with a network of non-human intelligences that had sought refuge in marginal and hidden locations. They were determined to preserve the possibility of life's survival on the planet and enlisted him to work on their behalf. From a nearby car park, he surveyed the center of the island on which he was shipwrecked. The location, he wrote, of a great malady that I shall dispel in the manner of Turner by making picturesque views on journeys to sites of scientific and historic interest.